Radio MD. RadioMD.com. Hear it from the doctor with expert guests from the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's Healthy Children. Now, our favorite mom, Melanie Cole, MS. If you're a mom, and a mom of daughters, but even sons, you know that we've learned over the years that you don't really want to talk about your own weight issues and looking in the mirror and saying, oh, I'm so fat, because our children hear these things and they pick up on those. But when you are really concerned about your children, it's a difficult decision how to talk about their weight without ruining their self-esteem. And even I, as an exercise physiologist, grapple with this with my daughter. Well, here to tell us about this today is Dr. Sarah Armstrong. She's a professor of pediatrics and population health sciences at Duke University, and she's also the lead author of the recent AAP policy statement, Pediatric Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery, Evidence, Barriers, and Best Practices. Dr. Armstrong, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And as I said, I am grappling with this right now because my daughter, is she's getting her period and she's gained eight pounds and she's very concerned. And I don't want to say oh, well, we need to really look at the food. I'm, we're trying to eat healthier and getting her the exercise, and I know it's a lot of water. But one of the biggest things we parents grapple with is speaking to our children about their weight issues. So before we discuss that, as a long intro, let's talk about the health issues associated with obese children and this childhood epidemic that we've got in the country today. Yeah, well, Melanie, thanks so much for having me on today and for choosing a topic that really is so important. I think we talk a lot about childhood obesity and the epidemic, and we'll certainly go over some of the numbers, but what really I, I hear from parents time and time again is exactly what you're saying is, I'm concerned about my child's health, but I don't want to ruin their self-esteem or make them feel bad about themselves um, in, in talking to them and trying to help them. It's it's a really tough message. Um, we're, we're trying to tell our kids, I love you just the way you are, and now let's change. So it's really a hard one to grapple with. So you are not alone. So, uh, so yes, the, the childhood obesity epidemic certainly has not abated, um, despite many years and many dollars invested um, in trying to help children and families adopt healthier behaviors. The reason for it is, you know, I think multifactorial, and I think many things are still unknown. Um, but certainly, um, the industrialization of our food supply has made um, has made the food that our children consume more calorie dense, less nutrient dense, and just more accessible uh, and cheaper overall. And then our daily lives uh, with the conveniences of transportation and electronics, um, which have certainly made many things in our lives easier, have also taken away that natural physical activity that was once required just to get through the day. Um, So certainly those things have played a part, but there's likely many other things going on as well. We know that um, environmental pollutants toxins and and even climate change itself um, tend to contribute to the problem of obesity and some of the metabolic diseases that go along with it. So certainly a multifactorial problem. And 
as we've seen, um, not yet getting better at the population level, although there are some bright spots um, in some areas that have really adopted policy level changes in communities and, uh, and cities to try and drive healthy behaviors being the, uh, the default norm rather than this something that families really have to go out of their way to achieve. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And my gosh, when we multifactorial is understatement, because when you think about school and recess and gym mm-hmm. and and they're mm-hmm. taking away some of these things to, you know, better math and, and, and skills like that. Right. But and yes, we need those, but they need recess. They need gym and all of these things, the electronics. So based on that, that we can't change those mm-hmm. things right now. And this is what's <laughs> happening with our children. What do you want parents to know if they start to notice their child creeping up or at their well visits, their BMI shoots up just a little bit? What do they say? Do they meet with their pediatrician alone Mm -hmm. and say, what do I do? What do you want parents to do as a first step? That I think is the most crucial thing for parents. Yeah, I think I, I think that's right. When I when I first started in this field, um, gosh, almost twenty years ago now, I felt like we had to spend more time helping families understand the health risks associated with obesity, because um, many people still viewed it as sort of a, you know, a, a cosmetic issue only, or something that children were just going through a phase and would outgrow, and there was less concern. I think the pendulum has swung a little bit the other way now, where I see parents that are clearly very aware of the health risks that come with obesity, and they may have even connected the dots in their own mind to say, oh, well, we, you know, we also have diabetes, and I don't want my child to get diabetes, which is certainly um, a scary thought for, for any parent. Um, so I guess the first thing that I try and encourage parents to do is to just first take a deep breath um, and, you know, and look at the big picture. So, so you know, we're not, we're not talking about diabetes right now. We have some time to think and plan in a way to prevent this kind of thing, um, especially if we're sort of just noticing the uptick in the body mass index at that, at that point. Um, I try really hard to help families understand this because I think panic mode doesn't help anybody. Um, panic mode is going to drive families towards things that are likely temporary, you know, like, well, well, maybe we'll do, you know, this diet for a few weeks, or maybe we should cut out all carbs, or, you know, maybe we should all go start training for, you know, marathon. Um, <clears throat> those things are admirable, and they show a lot of motivation. But ultimately, um, for most people, they will become frustrating and not sustainable over the long term. And families, parents, and kids are sort of left with a feeling of like, well, that didn't work. <laughs> so we don't want that feeling of that didn't work. We want, we want families to, to um, take a nice, slow lifestyle approach. And what, what lifestyle really means is, you know, any change that the family decides to make, they decide to make together. So even if younger brother is skinny as a rail and quote unquote doesn't need to worry about his weight, well, eating more vegetables and drinking water, guess what? That's good for him too. So, you know, everybody in the family can really benefit from that kind of a lifestyle goal. 
and for everybody to work towards it together in an encouraging way, um, not in a way that feels punitive or um, accusatory, certainly to avoid name calling, but try to draw out, you know, compliments for family members when they're really um, achieving one of the goals that the family set together will help families to make those incremental changes that really can then stick. You know, so then once you've done something and you have that feeling of success that we did it and we think we can keep doing this because it's not, you know, never eating carbs again or something, um, then you can pick the next one um, and gradually work towards that one. It feels slow. I get that. A lot of families really would like, they're so worried. They just want the problem to go away quickly. Um, But this is really the way that we know that behavior change happens is um, together. So you have that social learning environment that everybody's supporting each other um, slowly so that we don't trigger our body's hunger mechanisms that would then drive us to go back and do the very thing that got us in trouble in the first place. Um, And, you know, building on successes by feeling proud of your accomplishment really is something that will drive you to keep trying the next thing. So then when we're looking at all of that, and it's important Mm -hmm. to note when you mentioned about families being involved and the role modeling and and if parents don't eat vegetables or eat healthy or exercise, the kids aren't really going to pick up on doing it as well because they really do model our behavior. When does it become the point? And I've done a bunch of shows with our children's hospitals on bariatric surgery now for teens and the requirements and the patient selection criteria and all these things. So when does it get to that point? When does that go from maybe cognitive therapy or group support groups to actual surgical intervention for one of our teens? Yeah, I mean, such a big leap, isn't it? Such <laughs> a big think leap. About, you know, gosh, we're first we're just talking about eating more vegetables and all of a sudden we're talking about surgery. Like what happened to the 17 steps that feel like they should be in between that, right? Um, so it is really a, it, it is really a tough tough world cuz with the exception of a couple medications that can help kids to reduce weight, um, you know, there's really not much else in between that sort of lifestyle modification and and surgery. But but here's the thing. I want to be really clear before we before we even get into the discussion of surgery that um, <clears throat> I've had this conversation a few times now that a lot of people feel like parents are to blame for this. Um, and even parents who sort of understand that not to be true, I think still feel that sort of societal shame. Um, and nowhere is that more evident than when a child qualifies to have surgery. Um, so I've had people say, well, we, you know, the um, insurance company shouldn't pay for this because it's the parent's fault. If they had only X, Y, or Z, then we wouldn't be in this situation. And I just really want to undo that myth. One, because it's simply not true. There are very many families who, um, work hard to have healthy behaviors and the parents role model good behaviors and the children do their best. And it's simply, they're just fighting an uphill battle against genetics. But also, you know, many parents struggle with 
eating problems, eating disorders, um, and their own weight and their own struggle with that throughout their childhood. Um, and we know that blaming and shaming them does not help to change their behavior. So, so I just really wanted to kind of call that out as we really need as a culture to, you know, certainly stop blaming the children, but also to really stop pointing the finger at these, these parents who are worried and concerned about their, their kids' health. Um, so, so the question you asked was, you know, when do you get to that point at which you say it might be time um, to think about a surgical option? You know, there is no one-size-fits-all answer to that. Um, and that is um, after reviewing many, many articles and um, very well-done studies on bariatric surgery in children. Um, what we do know is that we should consider children who are have obesity um, by the standard definition, um, who are struggling with health problems now that could be reversed very effectively by bariatric surgery and hopefully spare them years and years of hospitalizations and medicines and poor health. Um, but also, really importantly, um, and maybe a little bit uh, more of the, the soft criteria, is um, the, the child and family who really understand that this is not a quick fix option, that they all really understand that this is a tool in the toolkit um, to be used in addition to all of the other skills that hopefully they've been practicing, um, eating healthy, staying active, taking care of their health by taking any medications that they need to be taking and being really regular about that. Um, because bariatric surgery, surgery simply won't, won't work well if people are approaching it as a quick fix and I can then go back to any old unhealthy habits that I previously had. Um, so it's really important important that teenagers have um, the, uh, the um, decision-making capacity to understand those things and know what they're getting into. Well, that was an excellent description, and I completely agree with you. I mean, this is a, a radical change in lifestyle, and mm -hmm. it is a tool mm -hmm. that, that is used to help. But if you don't change the lifestyle as a tool, this doesn't really work as well. And it's just one of right. the tools, right? It's just mm -hmm. one of the tools mm -hmm. in an ever-growing toolbox for physicians. So as we look at other tools before we would get to even that point, what do you feel are some of the most important things? If you had to tell a parent right mm -hmm. now, this child is on their way to becoming obese. Here's what I want you to start yeah. right now. Things that they can yeah. do ways that they can learn to cook or exercise as a mm -hmm. family or get off the electronics, what would you tell them <laughs> as a way to get going and to start? Because yeah. I think that that's, that's going to be the best, the best tool is to at least start those right. lifestyle changes. Right. You are absolutely right about that. And this is not a zero sum game, right? I mean, we don't say no. we're now doing bariatric surgery, so we can go ahead and stop all that, all that other stuff about getting recess back in the schools and, and all those other things. This is 
going to require all of those things working together for sure. So, you know, the, the, um, the thing that parents can do right away to prevent their children from getting down the road to the point to the, as best as they can. And again, for some people, you know, they just have genetics working against them and, and, you know, they, they may still do the best they can and end up there anyway, but the and best culture. they can do and culture, you know, and yeah, culture, absolutely. I mean, certain cultures, they just eat differently or they don't look at That's it right. that same way. So culture plays a role as well. Absolutely. I mean, I live down here in North Carolina. We say there ain't nothing you can't put on a biscuit. And that is <laughs> I true. Love I mean, that. everywhere you go around here, there's sweet tea. And, you know, that's just that's just the culture of food down here. So that's absolutely true. All of the things that you mentioned, um, you know, sort of in terms of lifestyle changes are going to be helpful. The thing that is going to work the best and that families should start with is the thing that they are most likely to do. Okay, so it does not help if I say everybody has to start drinking just water and milk in the family if nobody is going to just drink water and milk in the family. But if they were likely to go out and do a 30-minute walk together because they just got a new puppy and they have to walk the puppy anyway, well, you know, shoot, let's start there. Let's start with the thing that you're most likely to do because what we know about human behavior is that if you're successful in doing one thing, you're more likely to continue and try something else. Whereas if you try to aim for a goal that's not likely at that moment in time for whatever reason, then um, and you and you're not successful, you're going to feel that you know feel that lack of success and it's and it's less motivating than if you were to you know break off something more manageable. So pick a goal that the family can can get around to start with, and that as a parent you feel like, yep, at the end of the day we're all going to look at each other and said we did it, you know, and we we tackled this together and we were successful. And what's next? Rather than trying to pick something that's so big that it's just really going to be hard to get everybody to to uh, be able to be successful. Very well said, and certainly true. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like parents to know about? Working as a family together, learning to cook, going to the grocery store and picking out a new vegetable. That's what I sometimes Mm -hmm. tell patients that I work with and I say, and then look online and have a competition. See who gets to cook the bok choy a certain way or kale or try something new. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you want parents to know about getting involved, working as a family and, and trying to be healthy together so that they can help their children and we can just in any way tackle this childhood obesity Mm -hmm. epidemic? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think one of the single most important things that families can do that really nobody else in that child's life can do is make them feel loved and valued at their current weight. So even though we want them to achieve a healthy weight, there is so much weight stigma and bias out there in our culture. It really is still one of the last sort of acceptable forms of um, uh, of bias that exists. If you think about movies where there's an overweight character, making fun of them is is part of the laugh track, right? It's it's really something that people still see as acceptable. And the studies show that children experience the most um, hurtful forms of stigma and bias from within their own families. So well-meaning parents, 
that are telling their kids that, you know, their waistline looks a little big or those jeans don't fit you right. Um, Or siblings teasing with mean words that siblings will sometimes do. Um, That can actually do the most damage. And it's not just a matter of, um, you know, being nice and, and everybody trying to feel good in the family. This is actually one of the most important things to ensure the child's success. Because if the child feels shamed or blamed or, or um, <clears throat> at fault for the way their body is, then most children will then go to coping mechanisms. And what's one of the greatest coping mechanisms for kids is food. And in particular, uh, sweet foods, comfort foods, um, and they're likely to, to eat to make themselves feel better. So it's actually detrimental. And in addition, if they don't feel confident about their bodies, even at their current weight, they're less likely to go join a sports team or, or go out on the playground and play at recess because they feel self-conscious and they're worried about, you know, those, that stigma and those, those images being reinforced by kids on the playground. So really, I think, you know, um, doing your best with the, with the nutrition and, and physical activity. But honestly, I think one of the most critical pieces is to make the household a no tolerance zone for weight based teasing or stigmatizing and that really we talk about health in a positive way, um, not in a negative way. Absolutely true. And thank you so much, Dr. Armstrong. What a great segment. I hope, parents, that you will share this with other parents that you know. Share it with your kids because Dr. Armstrong gave you such great advice about what's going on in the country today and ways that we can help our children and ways that we can help ourselves and be great role models. And it's just so important that we work together as families and that we we tell our children and let them know how loved they are no matter their size. And so it's such an important one. Please share this show on your social channels. Please share on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and wherever else you go on and share things. And please be sure and rate and review and subscribe to this podcast and all the other Healthy Children podcasts. You know, our experts are provided by the American Academy of Pediatrics in conjunction with their HealthyChildren.org website really the gold standard. And we love our pediatricians here at Radio MD. My goodness, what would we do without them? They are doing just unbelievable work on behalf of our children. And that's what it's all about. So thank you so much for listening. This is Healthy Children, Radio MD. I'm Melanie Cole. Stay well.